0: Hello friends, how's it going? We're on episode 58 of the Looking Sideways Action Sports podcast. Blimey, these things are ticking by rapidly now. Anyway, this is the first of a special series of Hossagor omnibus episodes recorded during my recent rapid fire 48 hours in the southwest of France for the quick pro the other week. Big thanks to my friends at Vero for hosting me over there. I had a great couple of days. To be honest, had Headed over there with no real plans. And this one came about as a testament to the growing power and influence of the Looking Sideways audience, to be honest, because on night one, I, you know, did the usual, did a nonsensical Instagram story saying I was in Hossegore. I got a message from a listener on Instagram who said, ah, oh, Todd Richards is in town. You should try and get him on the podcast, which was obviously a really good idea. So me and Todd share a mutual friend, Tim Warwood. So I texted Tim and then within five minutes, got a reply saying he's up for it. Here's his email, dropped Todd a line. Basically, he was like, yeah, see you at your place at 11 o'clock tomorrow morning. Job done. So that should give you an indication of the type of laid back, open character we're dealing with here. And I'm happy to report that, yeah, Todd Richards is fantastic company. We hit it off from the start. And as such, this one flows very pleasingly indeed. Now, I know there's a lot of snowboard geeks that listen to this show. And what can I say, team? Your ship has come in. At the start, Todd basically said to me, so you want to gossip and talk shit about snowboarding, right? Yes, Todd. That's exactly what I wanted to do. So we did. And as you might expect for somebody who made their post-snowboarding professional career as a broadcaster, Todd is a great communicator, completely at ease on the mic, and happy to shoot the shit all day long. And he is also, thank Christ, actually opinionated. You know, in the same way that you and your mates are opinionated when you talk about surfing, snowboarding or skateboarding. Because Todd knows that ultimately it's all a load of frivolous bollocks this. And it also happens to be the greatest thing in the world. So his opinions and chat reflect that essential action sports truth. Uh, that's actually probably a better tagline than the one I've got. I might give that a bit more thought. So yeah, we got right into it. And I mean right into it. Ever wondered what Todd thought about Terry's boycott? Stay tuned. Was the pipe rivalry in the mid-90s real? Apparently so. And so on. There's literally too much good stuff to mention here. From Todd's crack about being an action sports senior citizen to his undoubtedly truthful view that snowboarding these days just isn't that interesting. So yeah, as you can probably tell, enjoyed this one. It's full of great one-liners too, because Todd is a funny sod. So big thanks to Todd for coming on the show, meeting some random English guy and sticking around to shoot the shit for three hours, which is a pretty much hour long we ended up hanging out, which was, yeah, a really good laugh. So here it is, me and Todd Richards, Action Sports Senior Citizen. And yeah, I did run that by him because I thought he might get the joke. Anyway, nice one. Enjoy.
1: Todd, how are you doing? I am doing good. You jet like, I'm, you know, it, I basically wake up from a coma every morning. It's <laughs> it's such like a deep, like a sleep. So like when I wake up, I kind of don't know where I am and stuff. Yeah. But I mean, was it day three? It's kind of today. I think it was, should be the worst day. Yeah.
0: Mainline a bit of coffee. Yeah.
1: It's worse coming that way, though, isn't it? I think so. Just because you get, you know, that it, it's so flip flopped and you're in unfamiliar surroundings and. You know, you go home and you can kind of relax into it and yeah. there's no pressures. But you come here and there's always someone has an agenda yeah. or something.
0: So what are you doing there. You said you're doing something with Red Bull.
1: Uh, I am. I'm doing the Red Bull Airborne um, air show. Right. That's smack dab in the middle of the WSL contest.
0: And that's going to be the, so just over the beach, basically. Yes,
1: it's going to be straight here. Yeah. Um, at the contest site i think they're planning on running it either saturday afternoon right or sunday i think sunday is looking like it's more likely because it's going to be really chunky and kind of windy and onshore and that's that's exactly what the air dogs want
0: right okay yeah I, i've actually timed this pretty perfectly with the swell dropping in it going onshore. right but like you said yesterday was fun
1: yeah yesterday i mean it was great the day that we got here i think wednesday morning was super fun. Yeah. I got here Wednesday afternoon. Yeah, it was yeah. amazing out here. Like yeah that's when you come to France and you want to have a dreamy experience. Yeah. Wednesday was a nice thing to slide right into. Nice. Yesterday was a little bit small, but I think, you know, it's supposed to jump up significantly over the next couple of days. It gets so pretty big actually. Yeah. Yeah. On yeah. the sand. Deposits you directly on the sand if yeah. you make some mistakes yeah, on the exactly. bigger days. Yeah. Yeah. Well when we were just saying,
0: so you've just come straight from home where yes. there's been um kind of shark attack fever yeah so so, do you want to talk me through that because that was obviously kind of you know that we were just saying there's it's an endlessly fascinating topic in a morbid way isn't it
1: it really is i mean sharks are thanks to uh peter benchley and and steven spielberg yeah like jaws has been seared into everyone's uh cultural psyche since the mid-70s so it's i think um you know people have a an interesting like you said morbid fascination yeah. the way they react to it um and this is your home this is my home break where i surf every single day yeah right and so s- how
0: does that feel cuz you can be you know you can you can be as philosophical about the numbers as you want but you know when you when when that happens yeah
1: it's on you yeah well it was uh, the whole story goes so it was saturday morning and um I don't know. It's probably around seven o'clock, and I usually get up and I kind of motivate a little bit. I go check the surf and get a coffee, and that's kind of like my routine, almost you know, every weekend or you know, nice. every morning. Yeah. So I'm on my way out the door, and I get this text from Chris Cote, and Chris says, "There's a lifelight helicopter taking off from Beacons. Apparently, there's been a shark attack." And I thought, I mean, Chris and I have this relationship where we, you know. Uh, text message each other the worst shit ever possible <laughs> and there's just always constantly yeah joking going on so I'm and there was a, a local surf contest that was happening that morning as well and I kind of thought it was like Chris um sending this message out so no one would show up and he could win the local surf contest right so right. I was like what are you which talking could, about
0: which, which could have been actually uh, could have been viable
1: you could write in that yeah totally <laughs> so then I'm I'm pulling up and I actually see the helicopter fly away right and that was my like holy shit so you know, a full whirlwind. There's all the kinds of people There's the millions of fire trucks and police department and people like, you know, it, it was like you walked up to a funeral, like no one was saying anything, a lot of whispers. And apparently the story, um, you know, this is, this is how it went down was it was before lobster season opens up, um, the 29th of October, uh, of September. Um, everyone usually, is fevered to get out there before the boats can get on it so they can get the first pick of the lobster so all the divers go out a day before and they all right at 6 a.m lobster season opens. so it's before light at at this point because we haven't done the time change in the U.S. yet so they were out there in the water before light and this church group of about 30 people went out to lobster dive and so there was a bunch of people out in the water no I think there was two surfers out with them there was a guy in a kayak and, you know, like I said, like 30 lobster divers kind of spread out over this fairly small area, right? Like a football pitch, kind of like that, like Sh- that area. Sure. So then this kid was diving by himself, 13 years old, kind of in his own little uh, zone. A lot of people around him. He was diving by himself, essentially, though. Shark came in from behind. Basically, if you drew a line halfway through your face, through your midsection of your body, and then back up your back and then connected the line back to your face again. Right. That's where the shark grabbed him. And he's 13 years old. Not a big 13-year-old either. Right. Like a, He was a little guy. So it's like basically he's been bitten in
0: half. Right. It thing. came
1: in, and his clavicle bones stopped the bite from going any deeper. It right. let him go. He popped up to the surface, uh, just started screaming, I've been bit, I've been bit, shark, shark, shark. The guy, he started swimming uh, towards the kayak. Two guys in the kayak who happened to be off-duty, police department and fire department guys pulled him into the kayak got him back to shore it's just starting to get light now and they worked on him on the beach life showed up landed got the kid off to the hospital his mom is on the beach watching this shit go down i mean the, the part i mean the shark attack thing it's sharks are in the ocean yeah it's just part of part of what we do we try to push it out of our head and but The thought of, like, a 13-year-old alone in the dark with the boogeyman coming out and getting you That's a little hard to take more than anything else. But he's going to be okay. He's going to make a full recovery. He's going to have a bunch of crazy scars and a crazy story to tell when he decides it's time to tell the story. Yeah, yeah. But he's fine. And how's the atmosphere down there now, then? Little wiggy. Yeah, Um, you've been surfing though. I went, so we were, there was a swell coming in. We just had a big tropical uh, hurricane swell that came in on Sunday, Monday. They closed the beach down for 48 hours from Saturday morning and basically basically until Monday morning. It didn't really stop a lot of people, but there was nobody out at that particular break at all. No one even wanted to mess with it. Yeah. But Monday morning came and, you know, there was really good waves and there was, I went out on Monday morning. Um, It wasn't a ton of people, but... It was to the point where it was big enough so the six or seven people that were out at the spot that I was surfing everyone would get away when a set would come through and then maybe you would be sitting out the back because you didn't get one right and you're just sitting there thinking a lot yeah no doubt Jesus. but I mean it's it's the law of averages it's you know that everyone um, likes to compare it to getting hit by lightning or getting yeah you have a better odds of getting hit by a car through Plane the park rush kind of thing lottery win. <clears throat> it is what it is but yeah. it's that like we were saying a little earlier, it's that primal sitting around the campfire, caveman monsters in the dark. Well, which is why that's the, you know the the Benchley story is so yeah like long lasting, isn't it? Because totally. like, that's basically what it tapped into, wasn't it? But it's I mean, literally before nineteen se was it seventy five or seventy six when Jaws came out. Like it wasn't really a thing, was no, it? No, it wasn't like a thing. No, yeah. Right. So <laughs> so it's to start the podcast off with that. No, but it's <laughs> but it
0: was all over Instagram. Yeah. And uh, obviously <laughs> it's just like we say it's just that fascinating horrible thing, isn't it really? Yeah. But you're not from Anthony originally. No, I'm from uh, Massachusetts. You're from East Coast, yep. aren't you? Yep. Yeah. I mean it'd be really good to talk about those days. If sure you're for it. Yeah. Um so you grew up skateboarding obviously. Yep. And um you know you're the generation from what I can see, I mean, I'm 42, so I'm probably like a little bit younger than you. But yep. yeah, I grew up with that, that era, yeah. basically. And uh, so who were who the guys you were you were looking up to when you started? Is this going to be like Chris Roach? In like, the very beginning? Yeah, I mean, like the skaters that, that, that sort of went to
1: snowboarding and tried to... Right. In the very beginning, I mean, it was... Initially, it was anyone that was older than I was. Right. You know, and then it became as soon as we got, I think it was, we got a hold of the Western Front. On VHS, like I got a a copy, like a third-hand copy from somebody. Right. And, you know, Chris Roach was the first person that I saw that I immediately... His style was just so different than anything else that was out there. I mean, Craig Kelly was around at that point. Um, Brushy hadn't really shown up yet. What, was, what, what area are we talking about? When is this? Nine, this is probably be like 1988,
0: right. 87. And this is when you first kind of became aware of snowboarding. Right.
1: Like at, at Before 87, I mean, I was snowboarding, but it was more like um, it was a social thing. Right. I went to school near a mountain in the wintertime. There was no outdoor skate park or indoor skate park. So I had to do something, you know, there was no ramps really that sure. we would shovel off. So, Yeah. I just would snowboard,
0: right. So, and when did you get into skateboarding?
1: Uh, when I, I started skating, my freshman year in high school. So that'd probably be like 1984, right? And yeah, so I was like a skater. Snowboarding wasn't even like a thing. I remember getting my first snowboard was quite a bit earlier than that. I think it was like 1985 or something like that. Right. I got a Burton Backhill, right? It's one of my buddies, um, one of my friends from back east. He's like one of the original kind of like snowboard dudes. His name is Rob Levine. And he ordered a snowboard, and then kind of we were all influenced by whatever the cool kids were doing. Sure. So I ordered a snowboard out of the from skates on hate in the back of Thrasher. Um, it showed up. Waited for it to snow a couple inches. Did it? Tried it in the backyard of some house and hated it. Classic. Couldn't stand it. Yeah. It's right. Dumb. Like it just. I can't turn it. It doesn't work. I thought it. You know, you have all these, um, you know, pictures in your head of like what you're gonna do. Like, yeah. I'm gonna. I'm just gonna skate on this thing everywhere. You can pfft, big dumb thing couldn't even turn it hard to hop around on yeah yeah not exactly meeting the no the idea that you might have had yeah Yeah. so that was in the beginning and and it kind of like just sat dormant just kind of sat in my room this Burton back hill for you know I would take it out I tried to do a couple resorts with it to actually ride a Burton back hill on a ski resort right horrible horrible experience right it does not turn yeah well, I guess, you know, you're talking like pre-edges, aren't you, really? And, yeah, I had the, you know, f- the
0: fins yeah, in the back. Yeah, and where you, I'm guessing it wasn't exactly, you yeah. know, a lot of powder. Concrete. Really. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, polished right. concrete. And also, I guess we're talking about the time when it wasn't, it was kind of touch and go which way snowboarding could go almost. Right. Because you're talking about the era before there was this big skate influence, aren't you? Because like we say, those, those riders that we probably end up talking about a little bit were the people that did actually push it in that
1: direction and make it almost like an offshoot skateboarding right right and 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 at this time as well was you know you had to be certified to go up on the hill to do it yeah so this is a pretty high barrier you had to pass a little test and, and it was there was only a certain amount of mountains that would let you do it i think there was only three in new england yeah and so it wasn't like and this is pre me having my license, my, I'd go with my parents. And so we would have to go to these ski areas and they weren't particularly very good ski areas that allowed snowboarding. And, and we were out of control. It's like, you know, I think about it now and and my kids up on the hill, there's no friggin' way I'd want them near the early snowboarders. Right. We were, I was deadly. I was, you know, I was a hazard to everyone around me. Of course, snowboarding was, was, you know, thought of as like this reckless endangerment, sport because we were like, yeah, yeah couldn't turn it couldn't stop it um but yeah so kind of fast forwarding that story a little bit i went to i went to college in new hampshire near a mountain and like i was saying that it was snowed all the time and that's when snowboarding kind of evolved and the edges you know became on the snowboards yeah <laughs> there was high back bindings and sure it became a lot easier to do yeah and so you can start putting those pitches right in, yeah into practice right and then you know i started to that's when the first magazines came out and i think it was international snowboard magazine snowboarder hadn't started yet yeah international snowboard magazine was out and who's the guy that ran that tom shay yeah
0: right his name he's one of those like unsung kind of yeah i think
1: heroes almost like yeah, pioneers isn't he you know really and he's um he basically kind of ran with this idea yeah i mean i think there was there was uh, absolutely radical did like an issue That old skateboard BMX magazine. It went from like Action Now to Absolutely Radical, I think. Or Absolutely Radical was a snowboard. There's some... I'm not particular on what the thing was, but there was kind of a little snowboard magazine. that It kind of turned into um, ISM. Yeah. So you started to see these, and then it starts to seep into right to, to the culture a little bit more. A little bit, and you'd start to see more like skate influenced pictures because there was no video at this point. Yeah, sure. It was like you'd see someone doing a a method, and you, if it was framed right, you didn't know if it was on a sand dune, a trampoline, or yeah, actually right. on a mountain because yeah. it was all guy in the sky back then. Yeah, sure. So you would just kind of see that picture and, and launch yourself off jumps and try to get your body into that position in the air because you had no point of reference other than. If I just fly off into the air and try to make my body look like this, yeah, yeah. So it was a little touch and go in the beginning. Yeah, but skating presumably has always been the the original kind of influence, right? Me. And it's it kind of you know Western Front came out. Um, that was probably right around the same time. I think maybe that was like eighty eight, eighty nine. Like I think maybe Sims had put out a video. Oh yeah, no, it was the Sims video first. There was the video days or not no that's blind Was it sims this is snowboarding with team sims and there was um there was i think a little part in there where it goes like it you know the skies cleared and terry kidwell took out his signature round tail and he does like a basically what was essentially a rocket air back then like just like a boned out like method boned down instead of sideways just off of this knoll at Donner Ski Ranch. Right. And I was like, oh my God. Right. That is so different than anything I've ever seen. It was like that iconic footage of Kidwell doing methods out of the, Dah- uh, the Donner Quarter pipe, Yeah. And like those the backside 540 early, back
0: then. the backside five, yeah. Right.
1: So that was it. I was like, okay, I'm, I'm totally down with right. this. So that's when you kind of like... That's when it
0: clicked. The, the possibilities. Right. The equipment's caught up. Yeah. There are influences. And you can kind of... You know, it's the classic like, well, I'm going to be able to do the tricks. That I can't do on a skateboard on a snowboard right? yeah and it
1: was skaters then too because before that it was what we had for influences on the east coast it was like andy coglin chris carroll they were all racers yeah you know and they were all just very much like smash gates with my butt inside of my body and i just didn't
0: yeah well again it's that thing isn't it like now the the the, the sort of accepted history of is quite neat and tidy isn't it mm-hmm. you know if you look back at it it's like oh yeah this happened and then this happened and then burton's here and sims is there but the more you look into it it seems like it wasn't that clear cut really.
1: No, and it was it was kind of a pissing match between the East Coast and the West Coast. Yeah. Tom Sims taking credit for um an evolutionary track and Jake Burton taking credit for an evolutionary track. And I think I think it's both stories are true. Yeah. I think there's truth in, in all of the claims. Yeah. But in but I can tell you from being there that East Coast was one hundred percent dominated by the Alpine aspect of snowboarding back then. Yeah. There was no like even the best freestyle guy from the East Coast was horrible compared to the West Coast freestyle guys. Yeah, terrible. So, when, yeah.
0: so, so, when did it start to change? Was this when you started to to come up, basically?
1: Um, I think it started to change a little bit before that. I think the when things really started to flip flop is when Brushy came on the scene.
0: Yeah, and, and I mean another. I, I'm not going to say he's unsung because that'd be ridiculous because he's Jeff Brushy, but you know sometimes. You know, almost can't give him enough credit, well, can
1: you really? there's... I mean, we in snowboarding know who Jeff Brushy is, and we... But I don't... And we're talking about my... In your generation. Yeah. I just don't think a lot of the kids in these current generations know who the hell Jeff Brushy is.
0: Yeah, exactly. And that's tragic.
1: Yeah. Because um, you look at the shots now, and I mean, they still, like, completely stand up, don't you they? You know when you say, like, oh, he is the reason. Brushy was the reason for us on the East Coast. Yeah. And as much as Jeff Brushy was the reason, also... Trevor Graves was the reason. Because Trevor Graves' this iconic East Coast photographer was the first guy that had pictures in the magazine. Yeah. Had documented Craig Kelly. You know, had had taken pictures of, of Terry Kidwell. And basically launched all of our careers. Yeah. Yeah, but, another, like, absolutely crucial figure, right? Totally. That doesn't really get the, the kind of wider... No, and it's, you know... Resignation, you might say. This is at a point when... Um, I mean, there's no social media. There's no there's no way of communicating uh, images or what's happened a scene instantaneously. It was like eight months what you would see what the new tricks were yeah. in California, unless you went out west, which none of us could afford to go do that. Sure. So you would just see the magazine come out, and there'd be like a picture of someone doing a six, like a stalefish or something, or someone doing some crazy air, and you'd be so blown away by it and it wasn't really until western front came out that we on the east coast realized that we were in a completely different direction than west coast right
0: right that's interesting so it's kind of like ah right we've almost got a bit of catching up to do it.
1: i think so and it, it was at that point too where we had started to compete a little bit you know yeah i had met jeff brushy and all the other vermont kids at this pretty iconic event that happened in New Hampshire called the Tenney Mountain Snowboard Bash. That was the first half pipe that had ever been built on the East Coast. Right. And it was a hand-built nightmare with like kind of like a (laughs) quarter pipe at the bottom. There's a couple iconic photos of Brushy doing like suitcase methods out the bottom of the quarter pipe. And I wore a helmet. Like it was just like full ragtag. But we all kind of met there. Right. You know, and that's right after that happened, Western Front dropped, I think the next year. And we all had, like, Brushy was doing, like, proper slob airs where he'd, like, bone his leg out over the deck. And, you know, his big trick was to do, like, the briefcase. Like, he would just go straight up and launch. Yeah. So, like, I didn't really have any other point of reference for tricks other than I'm going to do mute airs because I do them on my skateboard. I'm going to do frontside airs because I do them on my skateboard. Like, there was no – I don't know we didn't really have that, um, you know, the, like, cross rockets and grabbing with sure. two hands. that. That would kind of come a little bit later. Yeah. um But I was just trying to do skateboard moves. Yeah. So, so, this, th- so this is like the,
0: the, the kind of like embryonic years of this kind of East Coast freestyle yeah, scene. It, and it
1: was like kind of, it went from like a little bit of time where it was kind of all hands on deck, literally, like wherever your fucking hands hit on the on yeah. the snowboard is cool. Yeah. To like, we saw Western Front. We were like, oh my god, Roach holds his grabs until he basically runs his hand over. Yeah. And we were like, "Wow, that is, you know, drastically different than what we've been up to here." So that became a template for us. Right. Ride our snowboard backwards, hop around to forwards, grabbing three sixties. Like the first time I saw someone <clears throat> actually hold a grab through a three sixty, I didn't think that was possible. Right. And so <clears throat> it changed. Yeah. And I mean, I, I do my best to give Roach all the credit in the world. For what he's done for freestyle snowboarding, and then Roach in turn will give the credit to Kidwell and Palmer, but really those those are the guys that created the foundation for what we have now. Yeah, yeah. It's the reason that you try to make it look good.
0: Yeah. Do you think it's a question I wanted to ask you? It's a slight kind of segue from what we're talking about. Um, you, you know, you got this Legend Award at the Transworld Rider Poll last year, right? I mean, do you think snowboarding's good at at that? At like looking
1: after the legends. Terrible.
0: Yeah, because you know surfing and skateboarding seems to be a lot better at that. Yeah. It seems to take care of the culture a lot more in that way.
1: Well, I think yeah, and, and I, I've talked about this a little bit, and it's it kind of it's weird coming from me because it's like. I don't want to be some bitchy, like, you guys don't pay, but it's not really about me. No. It's not paying attention to the legends. It's about the people that came before me. Yeah. You know. Well, which is what you're talking about, basically. Right. Which is why I asked the question. You know, you're
0: you're not talking about
1: yourself. You're talking no. about
0: the people that you learned from and the people that set the tone, right?
1: And I do, I mean, I really appreciate the fact that I got that Legends Award from Transworld. It's, it's amazing, you know? But there's a lot of unsung heroes that maybe should getting legends awards because of the contributions they made to the sport not in terms of them being um public figures and being in front of the camera but like jeff grell invented the fucking highback, yeah like you know these kind of people that kids have no idea that these human beings even existed so i do think that there's there's a little bit of of weirdness as far as um snowboarding kind of eating it's old
0: I mean, why do you think that is, though? Because the, the companies will market the past. I mean, now.
1: I think that's very recently they've kind of like jumped into this nostalgia thing. Do you know that's because, like, my generation, your generation
0: are now at an age where we're getting nostalgic. Do you know what I mean? I
1: think so. And I also think it's because, you know, it snowboarding isn't particularly interesting right now. Right. It really isn't. I yeah. mean, it's... And it's you know I commentating events every other weekend, and I'm like, what's this year going to be about? One more, it's yeah. one more spin, one more flip. Obviously, this is a question I was going to ask you, and yeah. I did text a lot of friends when I knew we were going to be talking, and every single person said, "You got to ask him what he thinks about snowboarding." Now. Yeah, like where? Yeah. I mean, we can get into that like in a minute here, but just just to reflect backwards, it's snowboarding was a hell of a lot more interesting back then because of the cast of characters, because it was the amount of fuck you in snowboarding, you know, and, and how people hated us and all these things that we kind of had to push through and the innovation and just, you know, from, from being able to stand on one to get it to go backwards when it wasn't meant to go backwards to like figure out how to do the most basic of tricks. And that was, you know, that whole process is interesting. I could listen to people talk about Tahoe, legendary Tahoe stuff for hours and, I think that, you know, that our generation, we're the ones running the companies. Um, We're the ones that own the shops. Um, You know, we have the kids and we want, you know, we want to teach the kids about what came before. So I think, yes, there is a, there is kind of a, um, a push right now for the nostalgia. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, partly because the generation that's in charge of the money that's being spent is kind of our generation. And also because snowboarding is so vanilla. Yeah, for want of a better alternative,
0: basically. Yes, exactly. Yeah, so, I mean, what what do you put that kind of evolutionary cul-de-sac, if you like, down to then? Why, why do you think we've ended up in this place that we never wanted to get to? You know, for like 20 years, people have been warning about, oh, you know, snowboarding's going to go down this path. It's going right. to be about gymnastics. It's going to be about, you know, like one more rotation. And it's not like there hasn't been a dialogue about this. It's not like people haven't, you know, stuck the hand up and, champion style and champion like the elements of snowboarding that you're you know lord in now yep what what do you think happened
1: i think there's a couple different factors i think one of them you know definitely is the mainstream marketing of snowboarding um and that goes with x games and goes with um the olympics coaches um and basically the i I would say the average age group of a good snowboarder is a lot younger now. Yeah. And it's, you know, the, the legends that came up under me and the legends, um, you know, the people that I think have more personality are a little bit older. It takes a little bit for you to, to kind of like have a personality and be able to like, you know, create a hero to worship. There's it's weird because every kid that goes, that snowboards now is good. Like there is no, um they're all good. They're all really good. <laughs> and they're all really good. Psycho good at like a really young little, age. Little shits. Yeah, they are little shits. And that's the problem. It's <laughs> like, it's hard for someone that's older to um, put someone that's 16 and kind of just a little boner, you know, for lack of a better term yeah, yeah. up on a pedestal and be like, Oh, I want to be just like him. Yeah. And when you, and you know, and obviously when you, market to kids that's what you're selling right you know in it's it's, snowboarding, fr- it's and like and surfing. Wee. yeah you know it's candy yeah so i think you know with with the olympics came like training and clean living and yeah. so that kind of eliminated the whole Rankwit, sean farmer hard partying counterculture right so you couldn't you can't really get ahead if you're doing all these things because the money is going to where these kids are like on tv for x games they're on tv It just, you know, it kind of just went in that direction as it just followed the money. Yeah. And instead of following the passion of it, but I think it is kind of, it is turning a little bit right now.
0: Yeah, you feel positive?
1: I do because I think it's, you know, there's an opportunity right now in snowboarding for everything is cool. Kind of like in skating. It's kind of, it kind of mirrors skating two years later. Yeah. And I think skating right now is this very inclusive. It doesn't matter what tricks you do. For a while, I mean, skating was you had to, fit in this certain box or you were kooky and you got clowned by the girl chocolate yeah exactly you know plan b dc you sure. guys you were a clown yeah but now it's like you've got like welcome skateboards you've got all these brands that are like dudes are really gnarly they're not riding traditional shapes they're kind of wacky yeah that, you know. that eccentricity is right being people champion, do bonelesses again yeah. like oh that's no complies are back in yeah, like sure so yeah I think it's it's starting to have this all-encompassing thing in snowboarding too, where like you got spring break snowboards making yeah. these weird shapes, yeah, and like, yeah, that's true. So and these weird cast of characters that go out and film video parts and people love them, yeah. And it's not like they're particularly like technically amazing snowboarders, well, well, but they're just
0: well, it's, it's communicating the fun, right? Which is supposed to be the point, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I see that. I see that. And again, I, I've always wondered if that because you know for me. I've kind of worked in the European industry for 20 years and I just always could never understand why snowboarding marketed the difficulty of snowboarding, you know, for so long. Seriously. It was was like, this trick is so hard, you know, and it was like, and I just would be like, well, who cares? You know, like, I'm never going to be able to do that. And also, I don't want to do it. And all (laughs) all you're doing is putting a barrier in front of people and you make... I just didn't get it. You know, and one of the things I really like about what you're talking about is the accessibility of, mm-hmm. it. you know, like something like spring break, something, you know, all the brands are now doing this and it, it kind of goes back to the fact that it's about fucking around basically. It is
1: really. I mean, that's where I started was there was no snowboard parks. No, it was making the best of your situation at your local hill. Yeah. And you look at like a guy like, um, I mean, basically a visionary Pierre Wickberg, basically took another one hero dorking around yeah. at a hill put some of the best 80s music to it yeah and turned it into a thing yeah 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 so i mean again seminal yeah i mean it's like you cruise around with travis parker or you know and and all of those um lame after all the all those movies um you know are basically the movies that Kind of dictated where this generation went like where it kind of forked yeah you can either go in this super competitive crazy you're on a, a national team level your only goal is to make it to the olympics and win medals yeah or you're in this other direction where it's like fun and you're just kind of dorking around and futzing around on your local hill yeah and you can be you can be an amazing snowboarder and kids will love you and and you'll have please your sponsors by making these small edits with cool music and yeah you know, because that's that stuff is really cool, and I'm I'm glad that I got a chance to kind of grow up in that. You know, more like this is more like early '90s in Colorado and Breckenridge in particular, with all the Joyride guys and Rowan sure. Rogers and Dale Rayberg. Yeah, and, like another classic scene. Um, yeah, and those guys were. This is early season. There wasn't any jumps. There was no snowboard parks at this point. Yeah, and you would watch kids that obviously came from more street skating. I came from like a vert background, so right. I was very much like halfpipe. That's that's where I was. I would focus my innovation was trying to do technical lines in the pipe. These guys came from street skating. Yeah. So, like Nate Cole and all these the crazy good stylish guys would do like shuffles. You know, they'd ollie over a cat track, like basically rewind backside one eighties or like all the buttering stuff. That just came out of there was nothing to ride on the hill. Um, October 31st when the mountain opened up so we need to figure out something to do and that's where all that stuff came from right right and it's cool I mean jibbing started then too it yeah like the creativity urban stuff
0: exactly this this kind of this this at the root of it all yeah like
1: the, the appeal of it all something about
0: you making something out of nothing yeah so when did you make that move then because that was a big key development yeah. for you wasn't it heading it, to
1: Breckenridge I had just I had gotten sponsored by Sims I think in 1989 I did a Full season on Sims. Right. And this was like, I went from nothing to Sims is flying you around to do contests. You know, I think, you know, I'd never really been on an airplane before. I think I'd been on an airplane once to go to Florida with, to Disney World with my parents when I was like seven. Right. And now I'm like 17 or 18, and Sims is like, we want to fly you to Colorado. We're going to fly you to Lake Louise. We're going to, and I was just like, whoa. Yeah. Yeah. This is it. Right. Yeah. yeah. So I, um, Sims kind of fell apart at that point. There was a big breakup because Vision owned Sims at that point. Right. And and there was a breakup between Tom Sims and Brad Dorfman who owned Vision. There was all kinds of crazy stuff going on there. So Brad Stewart, who was my team manager at Sims, broke off to start Morrow Snowboards with Rob Morrow. So at that point, this is 1990, early 1990. That was big news at the time, wasn't it? It was huge news because Rob Morrow was was you forget again, like he was a big deal as a rider, wasn't he? Yeah, you know, like back then, he Robbie was he was the guy that you, you would show up at the halfpipe and be like, oh my god, here comes here comes Morrow. Yeah. he's gonna die or he's gonna do <laughs> the long. He would just drop into the pipe with twice as much speed as anyone and do one frontside air down the whole halfpipe. Yeah, right. And that was like he was just go huge. He base he essentially was, like this little caveman. He was Bam Bam from the Flintstones. <laughs> I just fully dated my you know myself and yeah yeah. The cartoons I was brought Don't worry, up on, but a lot of people listen to this will, will he, get that reference. But he was he was just a little spark plug of a human. Yeah. And he was out of Oregon, and he was, he kind of had this little brand going on because Rob rode for Sims, but then yeah. jumped off Sims the year before I got sponsored by them, and started this thing. Yeah, Tomorrow which was snowboards. big news, was yeah.
0: proper big news, because it, cause it was a a step away, wasn't it, from the
1: I mean it was Sims and Burton at the time, really, wasn't it? Yeah, Honestly. and it was it was the first like art, artsy snowboard company. Yeah, right. Scott Clum was the art director. He was also the art director at Sims right before Sims kind of folded up and and turned it into you know quote unquote Vision Sims. It was no longer like Tom Sims. It was Vision Sims. Sure. So Scott Clum was responsible for all of those iconic um, hot pink, like the the, when you think of like a Sim Switchblade or the Kidwell, like that was Scott Klum's, um art direction. So he went and jumped over to Morrow and basically Morrow was like, okay, reins are off. You can do whatever you want. Right. And he just went full art. Yeah, yeah. Well, and the graphics were, were, they were crazy. They were key, weren't they? Yeah. yeah. They were so crazy in the beginning. And, you know, the boards were, were pretty fun. They weren't like the best riding snowboards in the beginning. You know, it was a lot different than they were kind of more centered stance and i hadn't really ridden anything centered stance at that point i was riding sims half pipes or Sim, sims kidwells that had three feet of nose on the board sure so yeah. i got on these boards that were centered stance and i was kind of like what the hell this thing right how am i supposed to ride this thing but eventually you know that you got used to having a centered stance find out it was way better yeah and yeah that's kind of where it you, so you change direction you were in at the ground floor with that then yeah and this all coincided with the with the shift to, to mm-hmm. head to colorado yep and so i i moved to colorado um my father passed away that same year and my mom was like look if you're going to do this you need to do it right now oh really yeah so, all right so she gave you the, she gave me the boot kind of gave and, me the nudge that you needed and i was actually on my way like at that point i was kind of like yeah i like snowboarding like i'm you know i don't didn't know if it was going to be a, i was going to be a professional snowboarder that wasn't even like a thing yeah right you know there was. I didn't have any money was a career path was it yeah so I was people were pro snowboarders. people were pro snowboarders but as far as I was concerned they were like this these fictitious people yeah you know I looked at them like wow these guys are you know it's like made-up names and gods they were gods to me yeah I got a little taste of it I was actually moving to California that was my initial thing but I got to Boulder Colorado and Moved out there with this girl and I was going to continue on to go to California, but I was like, oh my God, this is, I like this place a lot. Right. So I stayed there and then kind of for the first couple of years, I would live in Boulder and, and drive to the mountains every day, like an hour and a half. But I lived in Boulder because in Colorado, the, on the front range and the other side of the mountains, it's very temperate. Like, you know, you can get days midwinter, it can snow, but it can also be 60 degrees Yeah, and be able to go and, and skate. So there was a skate park on the Front Range. I had good mountains. It was perfect, perfect place for me, and that's nice. that's right where everything kind of first started. Yeah. So who who were you? Who'd you connect with on the snowboarding side then? On the snowboard side of things, then I was riding with uh, Adam Merriman. Yeah. A lot. Um, Jay Isaacs, Jay Ninja Isaacs, uh, Stevie Alters. Yeah. Um, this is when Whitey had just moved to Colorado. Um, and he'd go on to make all those incredible yeah, snowboard yeah. movies um geez who else was in and around that time there travis parker was living in vale who's this really weird kid from yeah Texas. Yeah. yeah it was so he, always, he always had that he always had that but it was just you know he individuality was kind of it was just weird like back then you you think of all these people i didn't i didn't put two and two together for a long time that travis parker was the same travis parker that lived in vale yeah, well he he'd been around for a while, hadn't he? He had been and he used to hang out with this kid Josh Hemminger who lived in Vale as well and they were kind of it was weird, you know, back then it was like all the dudes that lived in Breck, all the Joyride crew was like this, you know, everyone had their crews. We yeah. had like our Vale crew because that's I rode with those guys all the time. So we were a crew and there was this other crew at Vale and that was like Josh and kind of these I don't know. It's weird to say now. It's I feel dumb even saying it, but they were like those guys were like kooks like you know <laughs> and the guys that lived in brack were, those guys were kooks we were just everyone else was kooks well that's just what you do yeah right? i know it's it's it's, it's just, so childish and it's immature the, thing, but innit? It's the tribalism in it
0: that's exactly what it you was know, It a full tribalism when you're like, a kid it's just like just, these guys don't know how to snowboard you try to
1: find your your little your little identity yeah basics, you just talk you? shit on everybody yeah, else yeah it's like there. oh what well, them dicks you yeah know? it's like that in it so those so travis and this other kind of group of dudes rode at veil vale, and they were kind of like backflip kids right and this is at a point in snowboarding where backflips were kind of just whack yeah they weren't cool no so you know there was nothing unless you were Damian Sanders and exactly and even then we were kind of like that's <laughs> whack um so you know we had these little clicks and and things were going off in different places and you know like I was saying in Breckenridge all the joyride guys were first starting to come on the scene yeah and it was it was just like you would hear about people doing tricks, yeah. And then, you know, you go over there and see like Rowan and like the embodiment of style, yeah. And like Nate Cole and all those dudes. It was just so crazy. Yeah, there's a lot of good snowboarders. Around, yeah, and I right? think the movie that came out that year, right around that time, was called Seventh Year. And Steve Blakely, uh, who is he, rode for Division 23, or no, before was it Division 23. Yeah, I think it was division 23 at that point. He um put out this really really shitty uh like I don't know if it was it was filmed on like some crappy camera. There was some 60 not 16 but 8 mm film thrown in there as well and Right. and it was just all that like jibbing. Yeah. You know, jumping over stumps and you know all that kind of stuff like little like hitting knolls on the hill and doing technical tricks. Yeah. And that kind of like that was like the first modern snowboard movie where all of those kids got exposure.
0: Yeah, yeah, right. So this the early nineties, I'm guessing. Yeah, like early nineties, the, and then
1: ninety one, ninety two, maybe. This is probably This is probably ninety one because at the end of that year, MacDog came out with Hard, Hungry, and the Homeless. Yeah, and that's when all those guys were. There was Breckenridge still had freestyle skiing jumps, right? And so those would melt down in the in the spring, and they would just shave the lip off. And they would be, the landing was amazing. For back then, it was like, those were the biggest jumps anyone had ever hit on a snowboard. Sure. So, you know, Rowan did like Switch Backside 720. Um, and people were doing like sevens and like crazy stuff. I think uh, this kid, Todd Franzen, who lived in Breckenridge did a Fakie to Fakie 720 at that point. Switch Frontside 7, yeah, you know, whatever yeah, you want to yeah. call it. Yeah. And that was so beyond what anyone had done. Yeah, for 91, I mean. And then Dogger put it out in a movie. Yeah. So, so it was that like, is a huge leap, I Maybe it? it wasn't Hard Hungry and the Homeless. I think it was Pocahontas.
0: Yeah, right. But that, there was basically a, about three or four films that all came out that basically suddenly it's like, all right, this is now what's going on. Yeah, right? here we are. We've yeah.
1: arrived. This is what snowboarding is now.
0: Yeah. And then I guess we start, if we shift it along a bit, then we get
1: to kind of like the heyday, your competitive career, right? Yeah, that started like... Well, I didn't actually... I think I won a snowboarding... Event. I was like captain of like fifth place. Fifth place was... I would <laughs> perpetually be in fifth place at right. the contest. Because it was like... I had to take down Brush. I had to take down Palmer. And there was always some wacky dude who did really well. Like, you know, Wendell or Kevin Delaney or some dude who would just chuck themselves and end up... And also Craig. Because Craig was still in the mix at that point too. Yeah, yeah. So I failed. Yeah, so there I am. I'm at fifth. I can't do any better than fifth because I have... A, there's a block... I'm not as good as these dudes. Yeah. And I think it was 1994? Yeah. No. No, 1993 was the first time I ever won an event. Right. And it, like I think it just unlocked a, a door. Like It made me believe I could do it. Really? Yeah. Because up until that point, I would I'm gonna psych myself out. Like, oh, I can't do any better than these guys. Right. That's then, interesting. So yeah, it's a yeah. mental block that you had. Yeah, and it was like something happened where, I, I don't know if it was, I figured out how to do the fakie 720. Yeah. And that was kind of like a um, a separation of like, if you were pro, like a pro half pipe guy, and then a half pipe guy who could win a contest. And I don't know how I figured it out. I just chucked myself until I started to land it. and I, Right. It just became when spinning started to happen. And... I just got on board with that whole spinning thing. Yeah. It, right away. And it just, you know, from, from ride, free riding to winning my first half pipe contest, it was just, you know, because I had all the other tricks, but I just didn't have, this is right when the Scandinavians started to come on. Well, I was going you know, to say that because obviously Terrier starts. Terrier, Cebu. Yeah. Terrier had been around a little bit. Like I was still in 1989 or ninety terrier first showed up on the scene yeah I was like this little kid riding for burton and i think the first big splash that he made was at the tdk 1990 tdk world snowboard championships at breckenridge that's when terrier first showed up right and everyone was like holy shit who's this little kid from norway yeah and it, i think terrier was already doing all the crazy spin tricks or starting to arguably i will say that tucker friends and who wrote for Sims landed the first fake you to forward 720 in the halfpipe. Right. At Breckenridge at in one of the practice sessions right. there. And we were all like he was just call it like like a, a carnival trick. Right. Like it would this has no bearing anywhere in snowboarding. I'm just going to try to see how many times I can spin around. Right. Um but yeah, it it all of a sudden it was like the Scandinavian influence came on. They were doing these tricks. There wasn't a lot of people from the states that could could kind of step to that. Yeah. So I just killed myself to learn it. Right. And that's kind of opened the door. Sure. To, you know, the beginning of, of doing well in contests for me.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, a couple of things I've read. You did talk, you've talked about nerves. You know, you've talked about the fact that you, you did
1: have to to overcome that. Yeah. Is that. Was that always something that was there? Yeah, I think so. It's like, you know, once you get a, a dose of self-confidence, whether it be a win or someone gives you a tap on the shoulder that you really respect and says, hey, that was rad. Yeah, they, sometimes that's all it takes. Sure, you know. Sometimes that's all it takes when you go surfing. <laughs> totally, and you, and you know what? It's it's funny because I I really pay attention to that because there's a couple there's a couple people that have said things to me over the years in snowboarding. Um, Craig Kelly was one. Um, Tom Sims was one. Roach was actually one. Like Roach said, I did like a good backside air at some event. Like he didn't really know me. Yeah, you didn't know? have to say it. Didn't really have to say. But those yeah. things. They matter, yeah. They they matter more than any contest victory. They do matter. Ever. They
0: they stay with you. Those things, don't they? Because I guess you you have that perception of yourself, right? And if you're competitive, like you, I'm guessing you probably are. You're competitive with yourself as well, aren't you? Probably more so than anything else. Because you, you know you, you're your own harshest critic. Mm-hmm. You know, and you don't judge yourself in the way that other people probably do. So when you do get one of those peers that you admire, gives you that kind of kudos, and it gives you a sort of glimpse, doesn't it, of like. Where the reality is, right, and it gives you the chance to kind of reset yourself a little bit to be like, oh, actually, you know, maybe, maybe there is, maybe I can do, maybe this. there is another door to Go yeah. through, kind of thing. I mean, I
1: was just always one of those kids who thought, like, I was, kind of, I was shorter when I grew up. I was kind of like a little nerd, so right. I was really used to getting put down, right. So when anyone would give me any kind of like confidence boost or any kind of compliment, I would just eat it up. It was like sunshine to me, like, right. Ah. So to have people say encouraging things like that and it kind of brings me to now like kids kids remember kids will remember the negative things you say a lot more than the positive things you say yeah you know there's i mean i can still remember snowboarders when i was coming up that were dickheads to me in lift line at stratton at the u.s open in 1990 yeah like it's vivid as it was yesterday people being dicks well like it cuts you deep doesn't it totally does especially when you're a kid so try well you know Big advice for any young snowboarders coming up that think they're hot shit. You <laughs> be, be nice to your generation because yeah. they will shit on you when they get good. So and anyway, it's amazing so you, how people still don't learn that. You no, think that they would don't. be pretty obvious. I'm a god. Yeah. You can't touch me until six months later. I've lost all my sponsors exactly. and no I've burnt every bridge. Yeah. And then it's like, Hey, remember me? Well I do actually. Yeah, you're a total prick. <laughs> but yeah, you know, it's I, I think I just got a little bit of self confidence. Yeah. And that just helped. I like and I was saying I I learned that I could win and it was okay for me to win a comp. Right. You know. That's interesting. It's hard to win. Yeah. It's hard to push yourself over that lump of like I got I can do this. Right. Instead of just being like crushed, you know, by watching other people's contest runs. Right. And that was a big thing for me back then because it was like I didn't particularly go very big in the beginning and I didn't really have a thing. I didn't really have like technical snowboarding, like skate lines or whatever the hell you wanted to call it. I was just kind of like doing it. Yeah. And I would watch Brushy go and he would go four feet bigger than everybody else or, or Terrier would do his crazy Terrier lines or whatever. And that would just crush me before I even... Dropped into the start gate. Right, right, okay. And was it
0: because the rivalry was really hyped? I'm not just talking about you and Terrier, but you know, generally, that was a thriving pipe contest scene. oh yeah. I mean, it really was. You know, there was there was pedestal events, and and there was meet. Palmer versus all the Europeans. Yeah, like exactly. that was like there was there was these. You know, there was a narrative. Yeah. Which going back to what we kind of talked about earlier, there's there's, a, there's not that many of them these days. But mm-hmm. so, and I always wondered,
1: especially as I've got older. How real it was, really. Oh, it was real. It was really real. Right. There was a big rivalry between Jimmy Scott and Terrier. Yeah. Jimmy Scott got caned, didn't he? He got caned. Terrier would say shit to him, dude. That was gnarly. Right. Um, I remember this one particular US Open, we're all sitting in the start gate, and Jimmy's about to drop in, and Terrier rolls up, and just, you know, your typical marble mouth Terrier, like, just, hey, Jimmy, I just want you to know... I'm gonna do your exact run, but five feet higher. See, so have a <laughs> oh good my ride, God. and just rattling him right so hard in the start gate. Proper like, mind games. Proper mind games. No way. But it was, you know, Terry was just a cocky prick. Yeah, and you know, rightfully so. He was the gnarliest snowboarder on the planet. Yeah, yeah. And, well, he um, had the profile to match. Yeah, and I mean, people fed that, fed into Terry. Like Terry could never get in trouble for doing anything at any res- resort or any event. Like he was always dropping into practice during women's and no one oh it's Terrier like you know he's allowed he's allowed to he do gets it surpassed. everyone else would just get you know booted out of the event and right he, he could just get away with it. But right. yeah so those rivalries were real. Right. So you felt that. Yeah. Right. For sure.
0: And then I wanted to ask you about the 98, if that's all right. Yeah. The Olympics. Yeah. Because another thing that I was reading when I was researching this was that you I think you said something like you choked.
1: Oh, yeah, I took big time. Right. And, I, I and, focused more on what would happen if I walked home with a gold medal. Right. Instead of what it would take to get one. Because,
0: again, the hype was massive, wasn't it? Yeah. Especially around Terrier as well. Because mm-hmm. it was, as I remember it, and correct me if I'm wrong, it was built up in the lead up as you v. Terrier yeah. c- kind of thing. And then he pulled out, obviously, which became the story. Yeah. So how was that as,
1: you know, being part of the whole conversation? Well, I think, you know, it's... <coughs> Terry made He's a de- Terry made a decision um, and Burton got behind it and there was like all the, the the handcuff Olympic rings t-shirt and yeah you know that kind of thing and I wanted to go to the Olympics because at that point in time it was like you know I grew up I grew up watching the Olympics and it was like doing I kind of was doing it for my mom, you know like showing her that I've you know I've done it. Right, and also because I saw like what happened to people. I basically, I started liking the smell of my own farts. Right, you know, I was just like, <laughs> I was like, oh, I'm gonna just go there and kill it and get, get all these endorsements. And well, that's the power of that of that competition, though, isn't it? it really is. I and mean, you know, that, we didn't know any
0: better then. Yeah, I mean, you can joke about that, but conversation I had with Dave Malman, who we mm-hmm. both know, yesterday was basically about that. About the Olympics was. It it has the power to change a sport. It does, know, which it's done to snowboarding, as you said earlier. Which it's quite likely to do to surfing, mm-hmm. for sure. No one knows, obviously, but that seems to be what most people think is going to happen. And it, so, I guess as an individual in that machine at that moment, the first snowboarding contest, you know, you've got a genuine chance of a gold medal. It must be fucking impossible. It was great. Cra- well, I had, I had done really gailed well.
1: by that, you know. Yeah. I mean, you, you kind of just fall into this. It's like, it's like a, tr- like a trance. Yeah. And for the couple years leading up to that, like were my best competition years ever. Like, I don't think for like two years, I don't think I lost a contest. And that was like a big deal to me. It was, and Terry and I had gone back and forth. Like he beat me at the world championships by like half a point, And then I beat him at the U S open by half a point. So there was like a, a thing there. It was like, terry and i were kind of yeah and people really fed into that like, it was i didn't hyped it was properly hyped. yeah i didn't i wasn't really didn't really care so much about that it was yeah. just like i just want to ride the best i possibly can yeah um but yeah going into the olympics it was like you know the hope for the u.s and like i got all these crazy um interviews and like giant magazines that wouldn't even touch snowboarding yeah money started flying around um you know got all these sponsors and like that had nothing to do, non-endemic sponsors, and it was the first time like there was just a media avalanche of, of opportunity and, you know, basically money. Yeah, the money kind of blinded me, right? A bit, and I kind of got sucked into the whole. What happens when I win this gold medal? Right. What am I? Like, then what am I gonna buy? You wow. Know? So, I didn't concentrate on what it would take. To put down that line, and I got fully rattled. Right, fully rattled. Like I almost didn't even make the team. I the first contest, the first qualifier event at um, Sugarloaf Mountain half pipe wasn't really that good. That's when. That's how. If you remember the U.S. team for '98, like there was, there were, like there was a couple randoms in there. Ron Chiotti was the big random for the U.S. Like no one saw him coming. Right, and it was because he won that first contest at Sugarloaf and you know i was like oh my god i think i got sixth and now i'm like i have two chances left to do this oh my god and ross was kind of peaking at the right time ross powers so i think i did well at the next one yeah i think i won the Mount bachelor qualifier and then i got second in the in the qualifier to go at, at mammoth but it was gnarly for me to get not win like it was it's weird when you start winning all the time like I said it really does come down to thinking that you're the shit yeah and my advice is stay humble yeah because that fall from the top is brutal sure so I was basing my self-worth on a 30-second contest run every weekend right like I am however I've landed on this podium that's who I am as a human and was that necessary? This is really
0: interesting because, you know, we're talking about getting yourself in the mindset to win. Right. Yeah. But then you've made that comment. So yeah. is it necessary to, w- do you know what I mean? How yeah. do you balance that? Because that is, that is a really it's interesting rough,
1: insight. Dude. And I mean, it was literally went, I think I went <laughs> two years, maybe a little, a little bit over two seasons of not losing yeah so when I started to it's the that biggest become self-perpetuating right it's the biggest event of my life and yeah. this is the qualifier for that biggest event and I'm I didn't fulfill the prophecy of like he's just gonna go in there and you know do really well and it's yeah I, I, I'm i talking about it right now and if I feel like I'm talking about a different human being really right so I was just I remember after that first contest it was the week before Christmas and I went to my mom's house on the east coast because it was convenient and I was just depressed i'm like i can't do this like just falling apart right you know and it was you know i my biggest thing was i have to get back to breckenridge i have to find a half pipe and i have to go train right you know just full train mode i need to do i must do better you know right right and it was just weird full i jocked out yeah i was i was every (laughs) i was everything i hated (laughs) as a youth fully going to jock mode right and you know i got i got to the olympics and and you know qualified made it there fell into the olympics hype machine um and then it became time for the the pipe at the olympics at that point was the best half pipe anyone had ever ridden yeah it was perfect three days coming up to the event the practice sessions were you know 20 degrees celsius outside like just beautiful sunny skies walls were perfect you could come up on any wall and do whatever trick there was no faded vert it was just amazing Roll into contest day, pouring sideways rain. Yeah, it rained in it. Can't, yeah. The pipe is like squishy, and it just was like not, not what I had envisioned in my head. Right. So that was already a self defeat. Yeah. And then, almost didn't qualify for the finals. Like barely squeaked in on the second second chance qualifier into the finals. Yeah. Um, and then first run of the finals because now at this point it's two runs combined which had done a, a really great job of stagnating progression in the half pipe for a couple of years sure. leading up to the Olympics. You had to like basically land there. the same <laughs> run all the time, like no risks. So yeah, I dropped in to the pipe, missed my first air, and then decked. Right. And that was it. Right. So how did you go over that? Um, well, it kind of helped me that that second run, I had nothing to lose. Yeah. So I just I just dropped in and... Probably did the biggest five forty of my life yeah. at that point, biggest McTwist of my life, into like a front side nine and I just didn't care. Like the reins were off. And it was almost like this I was really disappointed, but like the the weight of all of that past two years of hype up was off my shoulders. Yeah, sure. And I did a really good run that I was happy with. I didn't come home with the result. I was I was depressed. Yeah. After that. Um but it was like it. That defeat at the Olympics kind of helped push me forward in progressing snowboarding. Yeah. I think right after that was the World Championship, the Sim, no, the Vans World Championships at Tahoe were like two weeks later. Right. Which, you know, World Championships, Olympics, but it was like everyone, totally different contest format. Yeah. Three runs, best run of three. Full progressive, like like I said, the chains were off. Everyone, the yeah. shackles of this pressure of the Olympics were off. The guy jean Simmon was going to be there. Yeah, it was chance of redemption. Bah. Yeah, yeah, you know. And I ended up doing really. You know, I won that contest and started to like inv- invent a little bit for myself. Like I think that was the f- I did a inverted frontside nine hundred. Yeah, that was the first time I'd ever seen anyone do that. So
0: the shackles were off. The shackles were off, and then yeah. a week
1: later at the U.S. Open, I figured out the stupid backside of nine, the yeah. wet you know, quote yeah, unquote yeah. the wet cat. The wet cat. And that was like I, it was it was a change too because I started to really like just going riding right the park and hitting jumps. It yeah. had been so long since I'd not got off the lift, rode straight to the half pipe, yeah, hiked the pipe for a whole day. Sure. Right. So it's a different Different just
0: a different shifting. era. Yeah.
1: I was hey, really glad the Olympics were over. <clears throat> I bet, yeah.
0: I mean, I got one more question about yeah. the Olympics, then. so how did you how did you take the boycott
1: of Terrier's boycott?:
0: Yeah, because you know it became it's still such a thing, isn't it? It's still such a you know, held up as this big gesture, and, yeah, and you know, even yesterday, I had a conversation with somebody who's like, no, it's nobody should have listened to Terrier, and
1: how do you look at that now? Well, knowing who Terrier was at that point, knowing his personality, um, and he was it was Terrier's way or the highway. It's, so he had that strength of influence I, well I think or that character if no you like. one you know Terrier, like who Terrier is and who he represent and like what he represented in snowboarding at that point was he could do no wrong he was yeah. a god he still is like he's held in that regard um and like I said it's like terrier could he he was like the star people who couldn't get in trouble anything yeah. that he said went there was no one criticizing terrier. For anything at that point. And, you know, part of me knowing a little bit about how human beings work a yeah. lot more maturely now. Yeah, exactly. Because Terry wasn't the most mature human being back then. I don't really, I can't picture it 100% being Terry being concerned for the cultural impact an Olympics has on a nation. At that point in yeah, his life, sure. I mean, maybe I'll give him the benefit of the doubt. Maybe he was a socially conscious human being back then, but he was also a complete dickhead whenever <laughs> he wanted to be. So, like, <laughs> you know, it's that would be a very checks to the juxtaposition. Type, still recording, <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, like, like, this is this is not an, a diss at all. And this no, that's is, why I'm interested this you have got this unique, strictly, perspective. strictly an opinion. Like, maybe he didn't want to do the Olympics because he didn't want to get knocked off his pedestal. Maybe he didn't want to do the Olympics because of the cultural significance the Olympics has and the impact that it has on the host nations. You know, I tend to think it was a, a bit of both of those things. Right. And How did you view it at the time? Do you remember? I didn't even think about it. I was I, like one less person to take down. Right. Okay. I can see that from what you've been saying. Yeah, I was like, oh, whatever. Terry's not doing it? Great. That gives me... That That kind of loosens up my path a little bit yeah. to, to doing what I wanted to do. But, you know, he took a stand. And, you know, as you kind of read into the Olympics, the Olympics is, is corrupt. Everything is corrupt. You know, it's like these nations are corrupt with the way that uh, they handle the, the allocation of the money yeah. from you know the bribing in the IOC to all this it's it is it's a very sloppy thing um but olympics can do great things for for people that have nothing and i don't know it's it's i still you know i i struggle with it a little bit yeah because i don't want to see any you know the world is 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 corrupt When you get into big business and you're talking about you know billions of dollars being allocated and bribery and you know all these old men controlling, you know it's very Illuminati-ish. Well, it's just it's just the influence of power and big money. Exactly, that's what it is. It comes
0: down to power. All normal moral standards are are, are off, aren't they? Basically,
1: Mm -hmm. you know, there's a different way of judging behavior. I mean, shit! Look at our country right now. You talk about moral standards being chucked out the window. (laughs) Like we are, you know, this yeah well, that must be that's a whole nother ball of wax, but that's, you know that's a separate podcast, I think exactly, well, yeah, but, yeah, I mean that but you can be, see it I yeah. mean, it's, it's it runs along the same lines, yeah, and yeah, you know, just getting back to that i don't I don't hundred percent think that that Terry had all those things in mind when that went out, yeah, it was a marketing stunt, but you know Burton turned it into a marketing stunt, yeah. And they did a very successful job marketing it. And here we are in 2018 still talking about the yeah. marketing stunt every, that was pulled. Every four years it comes up, does mm-hmm. not it? Yeah. And every four years it becomes the more of the standard. But isn't it ironic that Burton has been providing the Olympic uniforms, but at the same time feeding money and feeding, feeding hype into Terry was right?
0: Well, yeah. I mean, it's... Uh, it's, it's like you say it's marketing isn't it it is marketing but I, you know I do have a similar question for you because obviously you commentate on
1: the Olympics mm-hmm. so how do you how do you square that I square it because I if if someone's gonna to communicate what's happening in snowboarding to the masses if it isn't me it's gonna be somebody else and I would rather bring my salty ass in there and try to do it justification than have someone that's going to be wacky uh nascar announcer guy in the booth i mean i'm convinced that they would find someone decent yeah but i think that maybe i have a unique perspective as in being in the industry as long as i have been knowing what it's like to sit in the starting gate knowing what it's like on the other side of success yeah um and just the maturity to go about doing it that way sure so it is a responsibility and i and, and every time that that little red light goes on that we are live it's like dropping into a contest run for me. Do you get the same nerves? I get the same nerves. And Especially, yeah. you know, it became, I had to really buckle down in the last two years. And sometimes I don't get it right. Yeah. To Got count, count yeah. spins, dude. It is rough. Every time I watch one of those contests, I'm like, thank fuck, I don't have to work. There was out a what couple runs. There was a couple <laughs> runs last year that I, I in, in particular, I think it was Max Perot's, maybe even Darcy Sharp's, where I didn't catch. The, you're only relying on what the camera angles give you yeah which is a and if they pan on the first they pan from the first hit and i don't see somebody land or i don't know what stance they are when they take off yeah whole runs off yeah yeah whole run is off sure so you know i botched a couple runs and that that's like me eating shit in a contest like that i was supposed to you know set up to win it's like it was like a fall in the first run of qualifiers yeah I'm, i'm harsh on myself yeah and the internet is very harsh yeah so I try not to read into the comments but I'm um a glutton for self-punishment so I'll go in there and flog <laughs> myself a little to. bit but yeah but like you know I just I try to make it count when I need to I I we went into the Olympics this year and after a couple events where I fucked up some people's runs I'm like I'm studying I'm going to pay attention I am not going to miss a goddamn thing and if I don't know what it is I'm not even going to drop a trick name yeah and try to you know, try to catch up with it on the replays. And I think we did a really good job at the Olympics as far as doing that. It was the best yet for sure. I mean the commentary across the nations, obviously,
0: you know, our mutual friends Ed mm-hmm. and Tim. Yep, you know, Craig in Canada. There was it was it was solid, it was strong. It was it was as good a representation on that platform as I
1: think you're gonna get. Yeah, and, and the snowboarding met met our uh, expertise as well. Yeah. So how did you And then some that must have been, you know?
0: something to say? and it to, was crazy and to
1: call i think you know if you want to just go through the events like of what it was really when red won the slope style yeah that was great I, I was a little bummed that we didn't see more of a showdown between marcus cleveland and him because in my opinion i think marcus cleveland's the gnarliest human being to to ever like technically snowboard um off of jumps anyways and i thought there'd be more of a showdown yeah between some technical like different kinds of like the rewind stuff that he's doing that is sure. just so bonkers yeah um but red one and he was a great embodiment same like when sage won, it was a great embodiment of what snowboarding is yeah it was it's the classic like win for snowboarding right wasn't it? you know women's the women's slope style i was really bummed i was really bummed that it was it turned out to be a who sucks least yeah because i mean jamie of course is jamie and i didn't expect i, I expected her to win but I, I wanted it to be more of a of a the women to have to push themselves, you know. Yeah. Jamie to have to push herself into trying something different. Yeah. Which I had no doubt that she could put down, but yeah, you know, she kind of stuck came in and wrote it stock. Um and then, you know, moving over to the to the half pipe, we all knew Chloe Kim was gonna win and she really did it in dramatic fashion and, and came through. Um I think that was like a it was it was a pretty great pretty great event for women's snowboarding yes you you can't deny how gnarly they are now yeah yeah i mean they are so insane and i'm almost more excited at the progression of women's snowboarding right now than i am at men's because you're watching the flash happen yeah exactly
0: it's like the last couple of years has been the leap hasn't it oh it's so great yeah which was something that they've had to fight against if you like the fact that it was perceived that it wasn't progressing quickly enough and the fact that it's now all it takes is one.
1: Yeah. Exactly. One to elevate elevate the rest of the crew. And it's like I said, it's great. You know, you hate like w- And in especially within women's sub-style and women's big air, like yeah. Anna Gasser's the she is the gnarliest of yeah, the Yeah, women's big air was great. Oh, it's unbelievable. Yeah, it was a real it was a real nice sort of redemption after the it was So cool. And everyone slide, stomped. Yeah, they all stepped up, they all absolutely killed it. So cool. Yeah. And there's just so much style and you know, it's just it, it has a different vibe to it. Yeah. Um and then, you know, men's big air, also pretty crazy. I would, you know, it is becoming like the human throwing star off the top <laughs> of, <the jump, laughs> of the jump. You know, it's like, how, is it just going to be one more this year? Is it like, is it an 1800? I mean, Yuki Kodono doing 1800s. Yeah. And quad, quad flip 18. It's just like, come on. Yeah. It is, it is very, very difficult to comprehend. For- it's very difficult to like get excited yeah for me i mean i think you know um this summer sage cosenberg did the frontside 10 rewind out of new zealand and that was like a huge deal on instagram i that's one of the most technical tricks i've seen And if sage is doing it and maybe god it comes down to the judges dude if yeah. the judges stop rewarding one more one more spin one more flip yeah then these guys will be forced to innovate and that's that's what we need.
0: Yeah, well, it's another perennial debate, isn't it? How do you arrest it but keep the progression? You know,
1: be- because you look at you look at any of these jumps, and whether it be, um, you know, someone falls in the second hit of slopestyle and comes down and does a huge method off the last jump, that method gets more cheers than a quad, yeah, of course. or a triple core, yeah, yeah, or whatever. Yeah. So by that logic, isn't that better snowboarding? Yeah. I mean, that's just. I mean, why isn't someone on the third jump doing a huge method? I
0: mean, people are trying with formats, aren't there? There's there's conversation around formats and how you can how you can do this and how you can reward that standard as that style of snowboarding that obviously there's such an appetite for yeah. as, as you're describing. It's uh, hopefully it happens. Yeah, yeah. So is the common is the announcing and the and the
1: commentating your main gig these days? It is. You know, I do that. I do. I work for Quicksilver. Um, helping them with snow sport marketing i'm very privileged to be on like their legends program right which is nice and nice you know and come in and 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 be a part of it as much as as i want to be and i love it like i love you know poking around in in marketing it's, yeah that's where i really like to do yeah yeah and but you got the brewery as well right we did we sold it oh you, I didn't yeah know that. We, we sold it to miller Coors, right so it's giving me a little bit of leeway to have you know some free time to to do whatever. Nice. So it's that's that's been a really nice thing.
0: Have you always had those kind of entrepreneurial nope. sidelines? No, no, really? really. So how'd
1: that come about? I was lucky enough to kind of fall. My my friend group just kind of, hey, we're we're starting this brewery.
0: No way, um, really.
1: That's great. Yeah, we're gonna do this thing, and it was like a bunch of skaters that I really looked up to, and yeah, and they're like, hey, do you want to be a part of this? And I was like, just hell yeah. Yeah. So I scrapped together some, I got like a, uh, some money from doing some, um, uh, voiceover work for some, some network stuff. Right. So it was kind of like, you know, extra income that I wasn't really counting on. So I was like, yeah, I just take this. Right. And it just, it blew up. Amazing. Blew up. Yeah. So yeah, I don't, we started village, we started villager about a year and a half ago, two years ago maybe. And that's like our new gig. It's the same kind of group of people. Um, it's like a coconut water thing and, you know, I don't, the, the pessimistic East Coast side of me is like lightning never strikes in the same place twice. Right. So I don't pay attention to that one as much. Okay. But you know, it was, it was a, it was a nutty thing to actually be part of a successful brand.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And not exactly the easiest market.
1: Jesus no, Christ. No, my God. And it's that's beer, crazy. You know what I mean?
0: Like we're going to, oh, we're going to start a new beer brand.
1: There's craft beers everywhere. Yeah. Like, right. I don't even understand how we we were even competitive, but we just kind of did, we took skate marketing kind of applied it to beer. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. it worked. It worked out. Yeah. So what's getting you uh getting you stoked these days? It's, right now being in Hossegor. I mean, it's I'm I love surfing. Surfing is my Is that is that your main? That's my like if you were to ask me what am I now based on the amount of hours I put into any sport? Yeah. I'm a surfer over all these other sports. If you had to pick one, what would you pick? Surfing. Yeah. No not to. even any doubt. Not even any doubt. Why why surfing? Because I don't there's no competitive aspect i mean i grew up competing skateboarding and wanting like wanting to be good and like having this crazy competitive aspect in that that turned into snowboarding yeah surfing i don't have that right and you're constantly pressures off pressures off and you're the the canvas isn't constant yeah so there's no you can only be as good as that wave gives you yeah and you know just doing a turn like there's not like there's not many sports that one one second can give you all the satisfaction you need for the rest of the day yeah yeah no i'm the same
0: I, if i had to put one i'd be surfing yeah i mean it's the only one i get better at it's a it's I a get worse and it's like going to therapy year. i go yeah. out in
1: the water and it's like i went to a therapist for an hour and a half every day yeah you know so it's it's really hard when i'm away from the ocean now because it breaks my routine of of going in the water just i can't think about anything else yeah just surfing get out of the water you know, and start my day.
0: Yeah, and have you got any other anything else that you want to do? Because you've done a lot over the years. You know, you've written books, like you've had such a varied career. You know, started businesses, had a successful sport sporting career. You know, blah blah.
1: Any any other? Just make sure that I raise my kids the right way. Yeah, was well, that was the that was the next one. Obviously, yeah. I mean, I've two kids, two kids. My daughter's fourteen. My son is seventeen. Yeah, and just getting out of the teenage years alive, <laughs> and, and pointing these kids in the right direction. You know, in the yeah. age of of social media and dick pics dude if i can survive this (laughs) oh my god yeah it's harsh new new challenge right there fully yeah fully new challenge and yeah i don't know you know it's there's there's a lot of fun to be had out there yeah life sounds good man life's life's fun you know it has it has its ups and downs when you when you become an you know an action sports senior citizen i mean i'm on the cusp I try not to admit how old I am, but like I'm on the cusp of, of half a century. Yeah, like of that age. So it's like yeah. getting up in the morning after skating, you know, it's like I can go skate for a day and it's two days off. Yeah. Or, you know, I'm looking at jumps snowboarding now, being like, Meh
0: Maybe I won't hit that. <laughs> maybe I'm not gonna Yeah. yeah.
1: There's the that kind of like fire I don't know, the the, the little devil on your shoulder that says, Do it. And the little angel that says, you could get hurt. Yeah. That angel's speaking a lot louder than the devil these days.
0: Do you find that a relief? No. Or do you miss it? I miss it. You do miss it? Because mm-hmm. that's that's another thing about getting
1: old, isn't it? Well, it's because it's in your head and, and your muscle memory says, yes, you can. Yeah, you can do it. Yeah. Like, you know, I'll go like i go skate vert. And you know it was weird because when I kind of, st- I want to say I stopped skating vert, but like I stopped skating vert a lot. And it became more park because that was just what was available. Yeah. And then vert ramps became huge yeah so they became like you know 15 feet high instead of like the vert ramp I grew up on was like like eleven feet high so you're it's like the super the evolution of the super pipe versus the n- normal half pipe that yeah I grew up riding they're two totally different things so now that within skating, these smaller vert ramps are kind of starting to show up a little bit more like fun so everyone calls them fun size and sure. most of the dudes don't skate with pads on them right i'm like cool it's bad <laughs> but like you know i i sit on the de- on the deck and i put my board up and i'm like i'm just gonna do a huge into you know whatever and i drop in and bail my first wall yeah a lot right it was a lot of first wall bailing yeah so yeah. your your body and your mind it's it's just take advantage of it when you, if you're young and you're listening to this podcast, take advantage of your body and mind being in sync because yeah. they slowly tar- start to desynchronize as you get
0: older. Well, I would see it's definitely one of the big challenges of, of middle age,
1: isn't it? Like yeah. dealing with that, that realization. It's It can be depressing too. and you And yeah. like, you know, just as much as losing, losing a contest when you've been this human for a long time. The disconnect between your body and mind as you get older and doing sports is just as harsh. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, but surfing, thank God, and there's people that are really old and really good at surfing. Yeah, so that is the lifeline, isn't it, it, it? Doesn't hurt as much. No, exactly. I'm not down for getting drowned or like getting <laughs> eaten by a shark. So my like, what I like to go out and surf, and like, you know, I'm not not having a dick measuring contest with anyone in my surfing so like i'm no. not going to jaws or like yeah, yeah i have no interest in going to drop into some like square 10 foot wave no i just want to have fun yeah yeah yeah
0: great hey todd that's been amazing thanks man yeah really enjoyed it a lot of waffling but whatever <laughs> not at all <laughs> absolutely brilliant thanks for doing it man thank you man So there you go, that was my outrageously gossipy and entertaining chat with Todd Richards. Big thanks again to my friends at Vero, in particular the two Johns, who were very good company during my two days in Hossegore. Looked after me exceptionally well on that jaunt. We had a beautiful house right by the beach, a couple of fun surfs, some general good times. And yeah, greatly appreciated by me. Now I've got two more episodes to come in the Hossegore omnibus. A chat with the great Neil McNabb, who has been a very much requested guest on the show. And then a freewheeling two hour odyssey with my friend and industry legend, Dave Mailman. Now, I know I say this every week, and can you tell I quite enjoy doing this whole podcast thing? But this one is a proper roller coaster of a chat that covers it all life, death, the state of the industry, and everything in between. So, what else is going on? Well, following some housekeeping corner musings the other week, in which I wondered out loud if it was ever acceptable to be interviewed for your own podcast. I had plenty of people get in touch suggesting that, yes, I really should interview myself or be interviewed on the show, which, you know, I find a bit ridiculous, to be honest. But then, as fate would have it, the very next week, I was actually asked by some friends of mine to be interviewed for their podcast I really am ticking off the podcast tropes week by week here, aren't I? I mean, I've I've even started going on about my dog on the show, um, which is another thing that pretty much everybody does. If I start giving Peg a fake voice, you'll know I've really jumped the shark, so keep an ear out for that. Anyway, my friends Chris and James at the We Move Movers and Mavericks podcast asked me to go on. So I thought, fuck it, why not? So we're going to do that next week. Of course, I'll share that with you when it's up. Christ knows what they want to talk to me about. But let's see how I get on when the tables are turned. Um, what else have I been doing? Well, I've been helping up, out some friends of mine with a book about the GB Park and Pipe team. And they're incredibly successful last decade. That's been put together by my friend Sam Mellish, a photographer. I was very stoked to get the chance to work with Sam over the last few years on the various GB Park & Pipe stuff we've been doing. He spent two years following GB Park & Pipe in the run-up to the Olympics. If you've listened to my episodes with Leslie McKenna and Billy Morgan, then you probably know a little bit about that. If not, go and have a look, they're on the website. Anyway, he's put all the best images from that two-year tour of duty into a book he's publishing to document to document the team's success. I have contributed a chapter to that, as have my friends Edley and Leslie McKenna. Um, I also helped Sam edit the whole thing I will, of course, put links and all that stuff up once it's out. Big up Sam. He's a true artist. He's a grafter. He's done some amazing projects over the years. He's somebody whose work you should definitely support. So go and find him on Instagram, Sam Mellish, and keep an eye out for the book. I'll be mentioning that in the newsletter when it comes out. Finally, just a shout out for my wintry merch. Yeah, you know, we're on the way for winter. Um, I'm not going to use the hateful Game of Thrones related phrase that every unimaginative tool uses about this time of year. Um, But yeah, the sweats and hoodies are starting to do pretty well. That's a really easy way of supporting the show if you're enjoying it and want me to help and want to help me keep it going seems like countless thousands of you are each week now so yeah get on over to the site www.wearelookingsideways.com buy a tee a sweater a hoodie wrap yourself in said garment as well as the warm glow that you're going to get from helping me keep this th- whole thing going for a few episodes more and yeah send me a picture because i'll put them on instagram all right we're done back soon with probably neil mcnab i reckon in the meantime thanks for listening and catch you later nice one